Good morning and welcome to chapel on this Ash Wednesday. I hope you are all surviving these last few days before the start of uh, what I like to term spring-ish break. Um, hope you're all going to make it to the end of the week. Um, welcome to any guests who have joined us this morning from off campus. We're happy you have chosen to join us today. So it is my uh, pleasure this morning to welcome to campus um, John Bell from the Iona community of Scotland. John will be with us on campus until Friday. He's going to lead us in worship this morning, and then we'll also offer a session on singing the Psalms with integrity tomorrow morning at 10 a.m. for an hour or so in um, Reith Recital Hall in the Music Center. So I know a lot of you might have class at that time, but if you don't and are free and able to join us, I hope you will consider doing that. And then John will be again with us on Friday during chapel, speaking on the topic of 10 things they never told me about Jesus. So nine or 10 years ago, um, John was actually the facilitator of a retreat I attended back at my university on the topic of music and worship. Um, and to this day, I actually do remember um, significant pieces of that worship and conversation that we had that weekend. John shared with us the Iona community's spirit and passion for worship and for living as the body of Christ in the world. The Iona community is an association of men and women um, from a variety of Christian traditions and backgrounds who are committed to the renewal of the church and to the renewal of society. I have been inspired and challenged by their vision for what it is to live together as Christians, and I hope that John's time with us this week will also spark some good conversation among us as we also seek to live together as disciples of Christ. John is one part of the Iona community and brings with him a passion for congregational song. He is based in the city of Glasgow, Scotland, where he does not have a mobile phone, um, a driver's license, a camera, iPod, or wife. Um, he has never traced his family origins, played a guitar, or eaten a Big Mac. So that's a very brief intro to uh, John. Uh, we look forward, John, to the music that you will lead us in this morning as we worship together. As we enter into worship today, um, let's begin with a word of prayer. God of all creation, you have breathed life into every one of us that is gathered here. May your spirit breathe into us again this day. As we lift up our voices in worship this morning, May our songs declare that you are our God, our source and our love. May our voices proclaim our gratitude and our wonder at your creation. And may your spirit spur us on to follow ever more closely your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All the women here. God welcomes all strangers and friends. God's love is strong and it never ends. Women here. God welcomes all 
strangers and friends. God's love is strong and it never ends. We can do it again. God welcomes all strangers and friends. God's love is strong and it never women here. God welcomes all strangers and friends. God's love is strong and it never ends. God welcomes all strangers and friends. God's love is strong and it never ends. All the guys. God welcomes all strangers and friends. God's love is strong and it never ends. God welcomes all strangers and friends. God's love is strong and it never ends. Women here. God welcomes all strangers and friends. God's love is strong and it never Keep going. God welcomes all strangers and friends. God's love is strong and it never And the men. God welcomes all strangers and friends. God's love is strong and it never ends. God, God welcomes all strangers and friends. God's love is strong and it never ends. God, God welcomes all strangers and friends. God's love is strong and it Well, I thought I'd begin with a wee song from Scotland, which actually comes from Africa, from South Africa. And it's better, perhaps, for me to sing than to speak, because you have an accent, <laughs> which I might not understand. So I will speak very slowly. I am uh, delighted to be here. I have been in Goshen before, and uh, it's a joy to be back. And I work every year in different places with Mennonite communities, colleges, or congregations, so I don't feel at all a stranger in this environment. And I, it was expected that I might say something about my community. Um, I hesitate to do that because there is on the handout sufficient information on the front as regards its origin and the way in which we constitute ourselves. But I noticed that, and this is purely my fault, that in the second paragraph it says that our members range from Plymouth Brethren to Roman Catholic in denominational affiliation and from retired coal miners to predications. Now, I've puzzled about this for two days because I actually wrote it. And then I realized it should be pediatricians. <laughs> but predications is easier to spell. <laughs> so I'll say a little bit about the ethos of the community which I belong to as I introduce some music from there. Uh, the island on which my community has two centers which are open to the public and to which people, sometimes Mennonite students, come in the summer to work uh, as volunteers for six weeks or eight weeks. They're based on the place where St. Columba in 563 came from Ireland to Scotland. 
to begin a mission which had the effect of re-evangelizing much of Europe. The light of faith was dimming in the 6th, 7th, 8th centuries, and Iona became a cradle of renewal for the life of the church, with people trained there and in other similar seminaries which Columba started in Ireland in a form of evangelism which was more by friendship than by diktat. And the missionaries from the Celtic church went as far, some people would say, as the gates of Kiev, and certainly into Eastern Europe and down to Bobbio and Italy. And one of the things which is prevalent in the Celtic monastic tradition is the memorization of the Psalms as would be the case for many rabbis in Jesus' day. Because they saw the Psalms as a source of faith and as a vocabulary to allow us to relate to God, whether we were at the peak of excitement or in the depth of depression. But the Psalms have certain other realities about them which we sometimes miss. And one of them is what might seem a curious way of speaking about creation itself. So, if I take, for example, um, one of the Psalms, which is, happens to be number 114, it begins, when Israel went out from Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people of strange language, Judah became God's sanctuary, Israel his dominion. The sea looked and fled, Jordan turned back, The mountains skipped like rams, and the little hills like lambs. Why is it, O sea, that you flee, O Jordan, that you turn back, O mountains, that you skip like rams, O hills like lambs? Tremble, O earth, in the presence of the Lord. Now, friends, if I were to come in here this morning and say, I was looking at the hills, and some of them were skipping like rams, and some were skipping like lambs, you quite probably and quite rightly would presume that I had more to eat for breakfast than cornflakes. <laughs> What's this fanciful language about, which we find elsewhere in the Bible? The valleys are so full of corn they laugh and sing. The rivers clap their hands. Is this some kind of New Age, uh, superstitious, uh, indigenous religion which the early Jews sometimes consorted with? No, it's something much more profound. It is the belief which is expressed throughout the Old Testament and into the New, but which has been sadly forgotten in many sectors of the Christian church, that ecology is not an option. Because when God makes the earth, God stands in relationship to the earth. And the earth is one of three forums where worship is offered. There there are the angels and saints in heaven around the throne, There's the church on earth and its many dispensations, but there is also the natural order, which in its way, in a language which we cannot understand, with both harmony and with dissonance, like the best symphonies by Shostakovich or Tchaikovsky, where there is clash as well as a sense of of, um, melodic unity. Uh, Creation offers this song to God, and the, the variety of the seasons, the color of the earth, the ebb and flow of the tide, all of this is part of a symphony about which or for which we have guardianship. So, for 
people of Christian and of Jewish tradition, ecology is not an option. Allowing the earth to offer its praise to its maker is a means by which our stewardship is fulfilled. And if the valleys cannot laugh and sing because they have been irradiated, and if the rivers cannot clap their hands because they have been polluted, and if the hills cannot, cannot skip like rams because they have been leveled off to provide aggregate for roads, then humanity will stand accountable for refusing to allow nature to sing its song in its way, which we cannot understand, but of which we are guardians. Well, at the end of the book of Psalms, there's a Psalm 148, which has these three different forums where worship is offered. And if you look at the second page, you'll find a setting of Psalm 148, Glory to God Above. And it's a very simple tune. Ta 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 di dum da 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 di di dum da da di di dum da di da dum da di di di. That repeats itself, and then, oh, sing hallelujah and praise God forevermore. And in the last verse, we'll sing ever, evermore. Now, many people of this community are musically intelligent, so I don't need to say any more. I'll just trust the Spirit in your voices. Shall we stand to sing? And glory to God. Outside the Abbey in Iona, which is, was built by the Benedictines, they took over from the Celtic monks in the 10th century, and they built this uh, small cathedral and uh, an abbey for monks. Uh, much of it was destroyed on two occasions by the Vikings, who came from Scandinavia not to shake hands with the men and kiss the women, but to more severely deal with the inhabitants and to plunder. And what the Vikings did not destroy, the Protestant reformers did at the Reformation. The place was put in ruins. 
But some things survived before the rebuilding of which my community was largely responsible. Like uh, freestanding crosses, crosses erected in the 8th or 9th century, one of them being the cross of St. John. Because for the Celtic people, St. John's Gospel was the favorite, beginning not with the story of Jesus' birth, but with this amazing truth that the Word became flesh, that that which was beyond human comprehension and beyond our seeing had become tangible. When Christmas comes, I realize that we have two things happening. One is a baby fest about an unnatural child who never cries and who's born in total silence. The Bible does not bear witness to that whatsoever. The other is the incarnation, where in the words of one of the ancient Celtic poems, the soles of God's feet touch the earth. And God becomes so tangible that Jesus is always in danger, not just of being killed, which happens, or which attempts of which happen six times in his life before Calvary, but where he can be contaminated by people who touch him, who are infectious, or where he might be contaminated morally by association with people who are unworthy. And God takes this magnificent risk to come into the middle of creation out of nothing else but sheer love, and to break down the wall between the sacred and the secular, because when Christ's feet touch the earth, all things become potentially holy. And my community has, has loved, as have their forebears over 15 centuries, these lovely words in John's Gospel, how the Word became flesh. So, the second song here is a setting of these first verses in the Gospel of John. It goes over the page, which is a bit awkward, but um, there's no way of getting around it. Um, I think you just kind of flap it up and down, actually. I mean, you find a way of of negotiating this. I'll play this through, and because it's in harmony and the parts are quite clear, then if you wish to sing tenor or bass or alto and impress your friends, please do so.
Well, these are two very biblical songs, but, you know, we reckon that because we are people of faith, we should not be ashamed of Scripture and to find our roots in it. One of the projects I've been working on for a couple of years is trying to identify aspects of the ministry of Jesus which are not normally talked about, but which are there in the Gospels. I mean, we just spend so much time with these images of the baby in the mother's arms and the Savior on the cross, and now in worship songs, the Savior who's enthroned in our praises in heaven. Now, there's nothing wrong with that except that these make Jesus out to be pretty passive, as if He spent His whole life doing nothing. We can understand why the Savior on the cross is motionless, the lifeblood in His system is being drained in the process of the salvation of the world. But He would not be hanging there if for the previous three years He had done nothing. But rather, if we look through Scripture, we find this very interesting Jesus who is gregarious, who enjoys eating and drinking. He's called a glutton and a drunkard, and you don't get given these titles if you just exist on bread and water. We find about 17 different meals at which He's present. Most people think He fed the 5,000, and then He had the Last Supper, and in between He fasted. <laughs> we discover that He has as many female disciples as male, but because there was a shortage of girls' names then, and so many were called Mary, we tend to forget. <laughs> that there's a bigger variety. We find that he uses anger frequently, not unrighteous anger, but in Luke's gospel, someone gets it in the neck in every second chapter, usually Peter, but other people also have the edge of his tongue. We find that he has no embarrassment in dealing with money because, you know, coinage of the realm is what he handles. He speaks in favor of taxation and he knows that the material world can be changed according to the way in which people use the, ma the material things and finance at their disposal. And he has a great affection for people who are not Jews. That's why the first attempt on his life happens, because he dares to remind people that God does not just love a chosen race. And so we find uh, that at the early stage of his life, he's bought gifts by wise men who come from what we now call Iraq, that he has an argument with a woman where his mind may be changed about how wide God's grace will go, and she comes from Syria, and his cross is carried by a man who comes from Cyrene, which means Libya. Eh? Iraq, Syria, Libya, the axis of evil. Eh? And somehow, with Jesus, it becomes a reservoir of grace. And sometimes we put onto him the notion that he will endorse what the West sees as being good for the whole world, including Christian family values. But if we go through the New Testament to try to find in the Gospels where Jesus speaks about the kind of family values we would like to espouse, there's not much evidence. He talks about a man and woman a man leaving his parents and joining his wife and becoming one flesh in the context of divorce. He says that those who love mother or father more than him are not worthy to be his disciples. He doesn't take Peter and James and John and say, now look, boys, if you ever have to do some marital counseling, here are three things that might be helpful. No, no. Because he has come to initiate something which is bigger than the nuclear family and where people will be bound together not because 
of their blood lineage, but because the water of baptism is thicker than the blood of genealogy. He comes to start a new family in which even those who have no parents or those whose parents despise them have a place because they've been touched by the water. So here's a wee song. You find it on the next page. It's called The Family. And you don't know the tune, and that's okay. It's not hard. I'll sing the first verse and invite you to sing the second. Sorry, I'll sing the first verse. You hum the second and then sing the third. So I sing the first, you hum the second, and we sing verse three together. no wife, no family. He had no children of his own. He once had been a refugee, despised but never left alone. To all the widowed and the fatherless, he showed the love that none had shown. Come verse 2. He liked to watch as children played and knew the lyrics of their song. Cared for those who lived at risk, the ones whose rights had all gone wrong. Of helpless and of homeless folk would always in his heart belong. We can sing now. He had no job to pay the rent, but women gave him house and food. They saw in was safe and good, and those whom no one ever listened to, discovered that he understood. He chose to eat in simple style, beside the wounded heart and
Well, these songs are all of our origin uh, in Scotland, and they're not the only songs which we sing within my community. The Celtic Church traces its spirituality back to the Desert Fathers in Africa. It's very interesting for Europeans, you know, who think that they are the oldest group of Christians, to remember that the Ethiopian eunuch did not come from Edinburgh, and that in Africa, as in India, there were Christians long before the Canterbury was founded by Augustine in the 6th century, or before Columba came to Scotland. And we recognize, partly because many of our members have been missionaries or worked abroad, that there are gifts to be received from other places apart from Britain or Europe. And we have been blessed over a long period by association with countries in Africa, particularly Ghana and Zambia and Zimbabwe, where our members have worked. And South Africa, with, with whom or with which we forged links when I was doing youth work in the Iona community, uh, I shared my job and my salary uh, along with another guy and a third person who was a South African uh, young man who had to leave the country because of the school riots and there being no possibility of him and his place having a fulfilled education. And I've been twice to South Africa and would in no small way say that our interest or our, the rejuvenation of our interest in song has come from learning from Africans how to sing. So we're going to do a song. It's a great song. They're all great songs, but it's a great song called We Walk His Way. Um, and I'm going to gradually build it up. I'll just point to some people, male or female, and say, sing this, sing this. And then once that's established, um, the people who are, the women who are singing the top line, if I go like that to them, it's not because they're making a bad sound, it's because I'm going to sing a verse. And I'll bring them in, and then they will repeat that verse, and they will sing the chorus. This sounds bizarre. If we do it, it's much easier. So let's take, um, let's take the men here. We walk his way, we walk his way, we walk his way, we walk his way. We walk his way, we walk his way, we walk his way, we walk his way, we walk his life, oh, we walk his way, we walk his way, we men here. We walk his way, 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 we walk his way. We walk his way, we walk, women here. We walk his way, 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 we walk his way. Women, watch me. We walk his way, 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 
Unarmed he faces forces of demons and death. We he walk. Unarmed. Unarmed he faces forces of demons and death. We he walk his way. We walk. We he we walk his way. The tree of freedom blooms by his empty grave. We he walks. The tree of freedom. The tree of freedom blooms by his empty grave. We he walks. We walk. We he we way and the truth and the life for all we he walk he is the way he is the way and the truth and the life for all we he walk his way we he So finally, a song which is slightly more syncopated. Some people in the Western church fear syncopation as if it's a medical procedure they'd rather not have. But I think that, you know, we are aware of different cultures, say, particularly Central and Southern America and parts of Africa, where that's part of the deal. And when people are asked to sing a syncopated song, it's simply that one half of their brain is being invited to come alive. One half deals with melody and harmony, one half deals with, um, with rhythm. And so much Western music has been written with one half of the brain in mind, and rhythm has been omitted. So the last song is I Will Sing a Song of Love. We won't do all these verses, um, but we will do verses. Um, this is a song about why we sing. We'll do verses 1, 3, and 5. Um, the chorus says, I will sing a song of love to the one who first loved me, and I'll sing it as a child of God who is named unknown and free. For the love of God is good, it is broad and deep and long, and above all else that matters, God is worthy of my song. I'll sing verse 1, we'll all do 3 and 5, we'll all do the choruses, uh, and after it, we'll remain standing for the blessing, and then we'll sing an amen to go out. So, could we stand? And I will sing a song of love to the one who first loved me, and I'll sing it as a child of God who is named unknown and free. For the love of God is good, it is broad and deep and long. And above all else that matters, only his worthy of my song. And I will not sing alone, but with earth and sky and sea. For creation raised its voice well in advance of me. I will sing a song of love of the one who first loved me. 
God, who has given us voices to praise Him, enable us throughout this day to offer in our lives and our conversation, in our generosity of spirit, the worship of our whole lives, and to God's name be the glory. The Amen. Amen. 